We're going to be in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation 14. Some of you are very happy that I'm not saying 13 again, although we are going to dip back into 13 just a little bit this morning uh, before we get, get out of this section. The first five verses of Revelation 14 are the climax of this larger section we're looking at right now, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through 14, verse 5. I'm going to start just by reading the text, starting in verse 1, and you'll notice we're in the same setting that we read about a few moments ago before we sang that last hymn in Revelation 4 and 5. This is around the throne of God, where the four living creatures and the elders are. And John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is there, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is a victory celebration. That's what this text is. Because that's what you do when you've been at war and the war's over and you declare victory. You have a celebration. For thousands of years, Satan has been at war against God and his incarnate son and his chosen ones, particularly those who have embraced Jesus Christ for salvation. In chapter 12, we saw this. Satan tries to devour the Messiah on earth. And when that fails, he storms heaven itself, which only gets him kicked out of heaven once and for all, and he's confined to the earth to do what he wants to do during the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. And so Satan, in this mad rage, goes after God's chosen people, the Jews, and tries to destroy them. And when that fails, he goes after believers in Jesus Christ. And that's what chapter 13 has been all about, his rage against Christians that happens during this part of the tribulation period. Revelation 13, 7 says that the beast, which we found out is the Antichrist, is given power over believers to make with them, to, uh, to, to make war with them and to conquer them. And verse 10 in the same chapter says that this time of persecution and likely martyrdom calls for the endurance and the faith of the saints. In fact, I introduced this whole chapter talking about that endurance and faith combination that it teaches us. But in the end, it is not Satan and his minions who are victorious. Not this unholy trinity of the dragon and the antichrist and the false prophet. The victory belongs to those who know the Lord. They will conquer even as they give their lives in death, faithfully refusing to deny the Lord who died for them. They are the true victors through Christ because they pass on into eternal rest and peace and joy. That's the scene we're seeing here. Well, the Antichrist and the false prophet, Revelation 19, 
says, are cast alive into the lake of fire. I'm not sure what that means, that they're cast alive. What's the difference between casting, being cast alive and not alive into the lake of fire? We'll find out. By the time we get there, I'll find out anyway. And Revelation 20 says the devil himself is cast into the lake of fire. So yes, this is a celebration of victory. That's what you do when you win a war. You celebrate. I think the largest parade ever in the United States history took place in New York City in January of 1946 to celebrate the victory of World War II in Europe. The parade was led by 13,000 soldiers and included Sherman tanks and howitzers and military plane flybys. The soldiers actually started practicing for this parade while they were still in Europe. And they practiced three times a day marching. And then they got to the United States soil and they practiced more. And they had this parade in January. And when the day of the parade finally came, it was four miles long, right down Fifth Avenue. It was a ticker tape parade, which meant that they were hanging out of windows and tall buildings and throwing confetti and long streamers so that the the parade was literally buried in the festivity. The streets were packed and people celebrating the end of the war. But any human victory celebration we can imagine would fall short of its ability to impress if we were to compare it to that great celebration day in glory. And the reason that John has shown this vision at the point in this prophecy is no doubt so that the Lord can encourage those who feel the pressure of the world, especially after hearing chapter 13, which which says that there are going to be those who die by martyrs, by martyrdom. In that time period, if you think about it, in the book of Revelation, you don't just have this big build up to the end and everybody celebrating glory. You have these little vignettes along the way that show you a picture of the end. It's almost as if uh, the Lord didn't want John to have to wait all the way through chapter uh, 22 to tell the rest of the story, but we get glimpses of it along the way, reminding us that the final day is coming. The Lord wants us to be reminded that even though there are going to be very difficult days ahead, this is where it is all heading with the Lamb in glory and victory and rest and joy like we've never known and celebration. Now, these five verses that describe who these 144,000 are who are rejoicing around the throne is what we're going to center on this morning as we finish this section. And I want to consider three remarkable qualities that these believers have that give them cause for celebration. And I think these qualities that we read of in this text will both encourage us and challenge us this morning as we see them. In fact, the 144,000 believers gathered on the throne are marked by these three remarkable qualities, and it gives them their cause for rejoicing. What are these three qualities? Well, the first is this, their identity. That's in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him, identified with Him, in union with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, who are these 144,000 
believers? Well, we've already studied them in some detail in chapter 7. And by the way, if you ever want to go back and listen to some of the earlier messages, you can do that, at least through sermon audio. And we probably have a couple of different ways to do it. We looked closely at these 144,000, and we saw that they're Jewish believers in particular who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. And, And they're not the only ones who come to faith in Christ, but they're representative of ongoing mission and people coming to Christ during this time. And most, if not all of them, will die as martyrs because of the attack of the Antichrist. Now, there's a special focus in Revelation on these 144,000 representatives who come at this time. But really, the Lamb himself, Jesus Christ, is first and foremost the focus of this text. Like he is the focus of all Revelation. He's at at the center of attention. He's the one the parade's for the one they're celebrating. It's true that the subject is much about the 144 and what happened to them, and we'll we'll look at that. But the lamb is the most significant part of the vision and its main object. Verses 2 and 3 will focus on this deafening song that the redeemed are singing because of what the lamb has done for them. And in verse 4, we'll see that they follow the lamb who has redeemed them. On the earth, as we saw in chapter 13, The false prophet is helping to deceive the world into worshiping the Antichrist and ultimately to worship Satan himself. But here on Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Lamb is all the glory. You know, it's very common today when couples get married for all the attention to be focused on the couple. Have you noticed that? I mean, starting way in advance, especially the bride. And those of you who have given your daughters away in marriage, like some of us have done, you know how much time and money and energy that people normally spend trying to make that day this perfect experience. In fact, the average cost of a wedding is between, this is what normal people average, on average pay, between $28,000 and $32,000. That, that was the national average before COVID-19. Uh, it went down over the past year and a half a little bit because people aren't getting the bigger venues and they're not having as many of the activities. But still, that's a lot of expense to put forward to try to create this perfect fairy tale wedding. But the church is the bride of Christ. And when we meet the Lord as his bride, we ourselves are not going to be the center of attention. We will be consumed with him. I think that Cousins' 1857 hymn captures this idea perfectly. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. If I can put it this way, we will be from that moment we are transformed into his image perfectly content with a contentment we do not understand right now to identify with, to be associated with, to be known by only our Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, there are two ways that these 144,000 are identified with the Lamb in this text. First, we see that they stand with the Lamb. They're gathered around him in wonder and awe and worship. They crowd around him, desiring to bask in his presence, to revel in his joy, just to be with him. And and here on this earth, we know that the Lamb should be our glory. 
that we should yearn to know Him and we should have Him as our soul's greatest and most important experience and we should be identified first and foremost as a believer in Christ with our Lord. And we rebuke ourselves, don't we, at times when we, we feel very discouraged because the cares of this world take our attention off of the Lord. And, when, and even without hearing a sermon, we rebuke ourselves for this. Our lesser loves carry us away from our great love. But imagine with this earthly tent, our bodies fallen away, being transformed like Christ, how we will crowd around with our only burning desire to know him and to be known by him. But not only do these 145,000 stand with the lamb, they also are marked by the lamb. And this observation may be even more important because it's not about something that these 144,000 are doing. It's something that has been done to them. Because the verse says the 144,000 had its name and, its, and his father's name written on their foreheads. They had his name on their foreheads. We first saw this mark in chapter 7 where we were introduced to 144,000. They, they were sealed on their foreheads. Now, like I said last week, I don't know if this is a visible mark on believers during the tribulation period. My guess is that it's a mark and a seal that people don't see, but that God sees it. In fact, in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, John says that those who are on the new earth will behold the face of Jesus and his name will be on their foreheads. And maybe at that point, everybody will be able to see that name. I don't know. But that means that every one of us who know Christ will receive that mark or we have it already and we'll have it revealed in glory. Now, why? Why does God put a mark on us? What's this all about? Does God have to mark us so that he can remember who we are? I mean, the book of life where our names are recorded, that must be a pretty thick book, right? Did God have to come up with sort of a numbering system so he could keep track of everybody? No, that's absurd. I mean, the one who knows all things, who knows the end from the beginning, does not need to mark us to remember who we are. This is not for his benefit. This is for our benefit, the seal, the mark is the Lord's way of saying, you are mine and nothing is going to happen to you without my say-so. And in the end, you are coming home to me. This mark is his loving ownership and it's our grateful assurance that he owns us. These 144,000 are marked by the lamb. Now, I pointed this out last week and I want to take just a little bit more time here this morning. This mark comes in contrast to the end of chapter 13, where we just read about another mark that Satan produces, remember, in a mimicry of what God has done. The people of the world during the tribulation period are marked by the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist, the false prophet who is attempting to persuade the entire world to follow and worship not the Christ, but the Antichrist, this beast from the sea, he will cause everyone to receive an indelible mark. The, the word I said last week actually means something that's visible. You could use it to, to talk about a statue if you wanted to. An indelible mark that shows that they are identifying with the Antichrist. We did not have time last week to look in detail at this mark. And I wanted to this morning because it's a big curiosity in Revelation. I want us to understand uh, what's going on here, at least as best we can. But there's always going to be unanswered questions with things like this. 
So if you'll back up to Revelation 13 for just a few minutes, I want to pick up the reading in verse 16, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll figure this out for just a second. It says, also it, that's the beast whom Revelation later refers to as the false prophet, also this false prophet causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, and there's no differentiation here in social strata or financial strata to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast. That's the name of the first beast, the Antichrist. The name of the Antichrist or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. No kidding. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This mark on the forehead or the palm is the antithesis of the mark that the 144,000 bear on Mount Zion as they gather around the Lamb. The mark in chapter 14 identifies the believers with Christ. The mark in chapter 13 identifies believers with another man, the man mentioned in verse 17. And 18, the Antichrist, the man who is the Antichrist. Verse 17 says, the mark is the name of the beast, that's the Antichrist, or the number of its name. Verse 18 says, the number of the beast is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the Antichrist is a man, and his name is connected somehow to the number 666. Now, why 666? Well, as you know, speculations abound in interpretation history. And I would just be wasting your time and our time in going over what some of them are this morning because they're very curious, many of them. But like any puzzling question, as they say, the devil is in the details. So notice that verse 17 speaks of the number of its name. Then verse 18 says those who have wisdom and understanding can calculate the number of of the beast, the number of its name. The word calculate means to count, compute. It's the sort of thing you do when you're trying to figure out a mathematical problem. So one thing it likely refers to is the fact that in Hebrew and Greek, in both of those languages, now listen, the letters of the alphabet of those languages are also the same symbols they use for counting. Okay, now in, in, in English language, we use Arabic numbers for counting. We add symbols to our language to use for counting. And these numbers actually came from North Africa. They've been around in Europe for about a thousand years and it's just evolved uh, as language does. So we use these for, for our numbering system. We don't use our letters for our numbers. But in other languages, they do. In Hebrew and Greek, they use their alphabet to count. This is the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Hey. Of course, we can all say that, right? And uh, on the way through. And I'm sorry this is a little small here on this uh, picture I cut and paste, but these are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but they're also the symbols that if you're writing numbers in Hebrew, these are the symbols you put together to write the numbers too. And so in this little chart, it shows that Aleph is one and Beit is two and Gimel is three and so forth. And you've got all the number system up to 10, then 20, 30, 40, 50, up to 100 and, and, and so forth. And Greek is the same way. A lot more of you are familiar with Greek than Hebrew. But if you know the alphabet, you also know the symbols that you use for counting in Greek. 
And in fact, if you know how to read Roman numerals, it's the same kind of thing, right? I mean, they use letters of an alphabet for their number system. So what does this mean? It means that you can take any word in Hebrew or Greek and treat the letters as numbers and add them up and come up with a numerical value for every word and every name. Now, yesterday, just for fun, I decided to find the value of my own name in Greek because Greg is actually a Greek name. It means watchful, by the way, which is ironic in some cases. Uh, So if you add the value of the letters of my name, gamma, rho, epsilon, gamma, three and a hundred and five and three, it comes out to one, one, one. Now I have to tell you, that made me a little nervous uh, (laughs) when I saw that. Uh, That looks very familiar. I'm glad it's not the other number. So I thought, you know, I should use the Greek spelling of the name uh, and make it come out differently. So I did the math again with the full spelling of the Greek name. It came out to 551. Well, that's still a little uncomfortably close uh, in my estimation to the number 666. So I tried my legal name, Gregory, and it came out to 291. So I, I'm trying to illustrate for you, not just to have fun with this, but there's so much you can do with this. The way you spell words, uh, especially, you know, Hebrew doesn't have the same sounds that Greek does. You can spell words differently and come out with different equations, come out with different numbers, and you can, you can find all kinds of ironic coincidences between the numerical values of some names, and, you, and couples can actually take their names and find their numeric value and do math with it and come out with some, you know, maybe it, it comes out to the same numerical value as a beautiful flower or some, you know, thing like that. So I can imagine what Hebrew and Greek weddings do, you know, with that kind of thing, you know, come and see the number of our name or something like that. But, but I, really my point here is I just want you to understand what this means, that you can add together the numerical value of the, of the letters, because in that language, they count with letters and come up with a numerical value of the name. Now, this may sound like nonsense to us because we don't use letters as our numbers, but in languages where they do, like Greek and Hebrew, Coptic, that's what they speak in Egypt, Armenian is another example, some of the other Eastern languages, Everyone knows in that culture that their words and their names have numerical value. It's just part of their, uh, their communication. So it seems that when it says to calculate the name and number of the beast, the name or title of the Antichrist, whatever it is, will add up to the number 666. And believe me when I say that throughout history, Christians have been adding together the Greek or Hebrew spelling of names of many people in government to see if it comes out to 666. Every once in a while when you say, our, our new president, he's the Antichrist, I can prove it. There's a way I can make his name come out to 666. That's the kind of thing they're talking about. And I'm not going to take time to talk about the various possibilities. I'd rather talk about another way, looking at 666, that, that we get meaning from this besides thinking of it as an actual name. Now, it... it I'm not going to be surprised to find out that it's an actual name that adds up to 666. I I think that's very uh, pointed here in the text. But there's there's other significance of the fact that it's six. The number seven, as many of you know, is the number of perfection. Now, that's just not a Christian saying. That's not a sensational idea. That's, That's known throughout the Bible. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the word that means complete or perfect is the same word that means seven. So this is a real thing in the Bible. Seven really is the number of completeness. It's not just Christian sensationalism. But the number six is one less than seven, meaning it's incomplete. It's not there all the way. 
It's imperfect. It's flawed. Furthermore, you see that the number of the beast is expressed three times. Three is also a number of completion or the essence or the epitome of something. That's why in Isaiah 6, when the seraphim want to exalt the holiness of God, they cry, holy, holy, holy. When, when somebody has something that's three times, that is the epitome of it, the emphasis of it. In Revelation, as we've already seen, when great devastation is about to come on the earth, John hears this eagle crying out, woe, woe, woe. In other words, a great woe is going to come upon the earth. It's the essence of terrible judgment. So here is the essence of imperfection. And that is the number 666. By the way, someone published uh, about 60 years ago in an article the numerical value of the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Hebrew. And it came out to 777. And the number they calculated here the essence of perfection is in contrast to the essence of imperfection. Now, I don't know how far you can press this discovery, but as I said, every possibility has been explored and is being explored all of the time. But that's why the text actually tells us you've got to have wisdom. You've got to have understanding. God, God's not leaving this here and people come along and say, let's make something out of this. He's pointing to it. So something is going on here. But going beyond the meaning of the number itself, I want you to notice what the number means. This is something that doesn't get talked about as much, uh, what the number means. And for some reason, I'm not advancing anymore, so maybe you could do that uh, up back, uh, back there. There you go. Thank you. Um, uh, it, it me- what, what it means for those who receive the mark, for those who, who refuse the mark, what does this mean? The text says in verse 17 of Revelation 13, that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. In other words, having the mark of the beast allows you to function within the Antichrist's kingdom. If you want to participate in the economy, if you want to belong, if you want things to go well for you, then you will worship the beast. That's very similar to what believers in John's day were already experiencing by living in the Roman Empire. You had to identify with the Greco-Roman culture. And that included worshiping the emperor as a god. And many believers, as we've learned in our study, were imprisoned and even executed because they refused to worship anyone but the Lord. And after Revelation 13... The mark of the beast is mentioned five more times in the book. I've only put three of the examples up here. Every time the mark of the beast is mentioned, look at what it's paired with. The worship of the beast and the mark of the beast go together every single time. In, in Revelation 13, it's a, the worship of the beast is in the context already. But after that, the mark can't be mentioned without mentioning worship. Just like the emperors of old the Antichrist will desire the worship of a God because Satan always wants to be worshipped as a God. And receiving his mark is how the world will say, I identify with the beast. I worship with the beast. I burnt incense to the beast. I sacrifice to the beast. I've got my mark. I'm one of you. I'm in. Don't hurt me. I'm here. In fact, one may have to prove that he is loyal to the beast by worshipping it. 
Then he can receive the mark on his forehead and his palm and participate in the marking place and buy and sell and have a job and so forth. If a believer in Christ in this time does not identify with the beast, he or she will be cut off from society or worse, will likely be put to death. That's what the scripture seems to say about this time period. The kingdom of the Antichrist will be the ultimate cancel culture. Imagine what your life would be like right now if you lived in Afghanistan this day and did not identify with the Taliban. There are many people who are over there right now who are in that category. And, and, and the stories we're hearing are stories of fear. That is the kind of life you would be living if you were a believer in this time period. That's the kind of kingdom the Antichrist will rule over. And we're starting to feel that, that kind of pressure in our own country right now. If you don't identify with our view of marriage or gender identity or human sexuality or our view of abortion, then we are going to cancel you as a person. We're going to try to destroy your business. We're going to boycott your company. We will pressure you politically. We will sue you legally. We will protest against you. Anything to get you to identify with us. This is nothing new in the world. It's just that we've enjoyed a lot of time without this kind of thing going on. There's a constant pressure to bow down, to give in. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll start to think it doesn't really matter. We can give in a little bit. But the Lord Jesus has given us this book of Revelation so we might be encouraged to know that one day we will be standing with the Lamb. Because we have identified, because we have identified solely and completely and faithfully with him already. And we have remained faithful to him. And the pressures of this world to conform to the culture around us will be gone forever. Because the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. So the first remarkable quality of those who are gathered on the throne, which then give them great cause for celebration, is their identity. They're marked by the Lamb, and they belong to Him for all eternity. And we should be careful to be identified solely and consistently with Him today also. Now, there are two more remarkable qualities here, and I'm actually going to take a lot less time on them both together than I did on the first one, just to look at them with you for a few minutes this morning. But uh, the the first one is, is the identity. The second one is their festivity. Their festivity. Revelation 14, 2 and 3. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is a description of deafening praise. And worship that splits the heavens. First, I want you to note there's a lot of noise. It's striking how much description goes into the volume and strength of this festivity, isn't it? It's like, why don't you talk about the mark for a few minutes so we can understand what that's all about. But, but no, there's a lot, of, a lot of attention given to this noise. The, the translation calls this a voice. The Greek word is simply sound. It could be used for voice or regular sound. The quality of sound, notice, was like plucked strings, the harps. But these weren't 
the quiet, relaxing plucking you hear, apparently. There are apparently so many harps playing that the sound is like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. So imagine harps, but with a quality so deep and heavy and massive that you could only describe it as loud thunder or the roaring of the sea. Now, what is this sound? Well, it may be harps are playing. We're not certain. Notice it says, John says it was a sound like the sound of harps. He didn't say it was harps, but he also says they're singing. This noise, this sound is a choir. What are they singing? Well, I want to make two observations about this song. First of all, it says they sang a new song, a new song. What does that mean? Well, as far as I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of you, I didn't have time to go as deep as I wanted to in this section, but as far as I can tell, there are only seven other times when a new song, the phrase new song, is mentioned outside of the Old Testament. And six of those times are in the Psalms, and one of them is in Isaiah. Each time, each time the word, the phrase new song is mentioned, it is always a song sung to the Lord by people he has rescued. For example, the familiar words of Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry and drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This song has nothing to do with a new tune or style or even a particular set of lyrics. It has to do with this fresh elation and grateful praise that wells up within us when we were going to be defeated, but suddenly God rescues. Maybe you thought you were going to die. Maybe you despaired of any hope, but God stepped in. You know that feeling when your team is down by two with only five seconds on the clock and someone throws up this ridiculous three-point shot and it banks in at the buzzer and wins the game, the euphoria of one team over the other, but the euphoria that splits the roof in that gymnasium, this is the kind of thing it is. It's a new song, only deeper and richer than any human experience we can imagine because this salvation is forever. These believers came out of the tribulation period ostensibly having lost their lives, having been hunted, having been persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. But they were gathered to the Lord, now just beginning to experience eternal life, now finally vindicated for their faith in Jesus. And their song is full of joy and full-on praise. And I think that this helps to understand something else about this song. It says here that they alone could learn this song. No one could learn the song except the 144,000. Now notice, it doesn't say that these believers were the only ones who knew this song. But they were the only ones who could learn the song. Because they had been redeemed from the earth. The word learn is actually the word manthano. It's where we get our English word mathematics. The word has to do with learning by experience or discovery or adding up things. 
and what he seems to be saying here is that these believers are singing with these euphoric, deafening praise. They're singing this song that they learned by experience when they were rescued from the earth and gathered together with the lamb. The word redeemed, many of you know, is actually a financial term. It means to buy out of the marketplace. I think it has completed here the picture that we see in this whole text. These believers were living and witnessing in a world that had become hostile to them, a hostile environment. They were identifying not with the world, not with the Antichrist, the God of this world. They were identifying with the champion of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, and they refused to identify with anybody else. And being faithful even unto death, the Lord Jesus rescued them out of the world and brought them home. It is a rescue operation that the angels and the living creatures around the throne, even though they are glorious beings, they cannot know by experience. Only we can. They've never been rescued like that. They don't know redemption firsthand like we do. And one day, every one of us, those of us who are in this room right now, if you know Jesus Christ, we will be there with everybody else from all generations, finally on the other side, singing our hearts out, lost in wonder, love, and praise. It will be a new song. We will be basking in the experience of knowing once and for all what that redemption really means. And finally, I want to see not only the remarkable quality of these believers' identity and festivity But then we see their fidelity. Remember the definition of a conqueror in Revelation? A conqueror in Revelation is one who remains faithful to the end no matter what. Well, in our remaining two verses here, we see a reference to that faithfulness, that fidelity, in terms of their uncompromising obedience to the Lord, especially in the face of the pressure to give into the world. He says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed by mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is not the way they were living when their bodies fell away, and now they're finally redeemed in glory. This is the kind of life they were living that made them who they were. It was a sign that they were really in Christ. It was, it was the evidence, it was the fruit of the fact that they had the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the fact that they were really believers. And so when we read these, uh, these qualities here of their fidelity, they challenge us. These are the kinds of virtues we should see in our lives right now, which guarantee us experientially that we will be around that throne someday, praising God for our redemption. Our time is fleeting, so I only want to make a few remarks here about each of them. Although we could, if we were going to be in the building next week, I would, I would park right here and then we'd come back to this one section. But uh, I, I want to go a different direction for a while when we get into the new facility. So this is pragmatic, but we're just going to finish this up this morning. Um, first of all, I want you to notice they were faithful in their worship. This is one of the virtues of their fidelity. They were faithful in their worship. You're probably wondering what John means when he says that they have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. He's not speaking of marital fidelity or sexual purity per se. Earlier in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus, remember, he, he censures the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira in Revelation 2 because there were members of the church following a cult of false worship that emphasized immorality. He says you can't have it, one way the, you can't have it both ways. 
And in the Old Testament, when God's people fell into idolatry, God referred to them as having committed, remember, spiritual adultery. You got a whole prophecy of Hosea that's based on that theme. So this reference is not a comment on their sexual purity per se. What he means is when it comes to fidelity to the father and the son, they have remained virgins. They have kept themselves pure from the world. As the bride of the lamb, they have not defiled themselves with the worship of things other than God. They have not given their hearts to other gods. They have not loved the world. They remain faithful to worship the God who redeemed them, even amid the pressure of a world trying to press them to conform. They were still able to say that they loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So they were faithful in their worship. Secondly, they were also faithful in their obedience because the text says, I love these verses for some reason, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. If if the lamb goes there, that's where I'm going. Wouldn't that be a beautiful metaphor to live your whole life, to keep you on the path where God wants you to go? If, If that's where Christ is going, that's where I'm going. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. I think there are two striking ideas here that are easy to miss unless you think about them for a minute. First, the fact that they are following Jesus Christ, the Lamb. This is the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he calls his disciples to follow him. We see him holding out the invitation, follow me. For example, we all know Matthew four nineteen, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The idea of following Jesus as the heart of discipleship. It defines what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. But following Christ, we have to admit, sometimes seems very benign, very easy. Until you follow him into an environment where people are hostile to Christianity, then it gets tough. That's why Jesus challenged his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's all one action. Following includes denying yourself and taking your cross as you follow. And that is exactly what these 144,000 have done. They said no to self. They took up their cross, their willingness to bear the reproach of Christ, even if it meant their own execution, like Jesus died, in order to follow him. This is exactly what we've been called to do. Not just for believers in the tribulation period. We're called to do that now. There are believers in all kinds of countries all over the world who really understand the same kind of thing the tribulation saints are going to experience. Some of them are in Afghanistan. It's been relatively easy to do this in a culture that has a Christian heritage, but the more we leave that heritage behind, I think the more we will find that following the Lamb will have some severe implications. Until we realize those implications, we may not appreciate as these 144,000 do, the sheer joy and wonder that one day it will be for us when we are with the Lamb and all of the heartache is gone. But the more faithfully we follow Christ now, the sooner we will understand what it is we actually long for. And one other thing I don't want to escape your notice is that John says that these 144,000 have been redeemed as firstfruits from mankind. And there's so much here that connects with the Old Testament sacrificial system. I just want you to note that these have been rescued from among humanity who are on the earth during the tribulation period. And if these are first fruits, guess what? These are going to be second fruits and third fruits. Again, these 144,000 are not the only ones who will come 
to faith in Christ by God's grace. Now, finally, very quickly here, I want you to see that they were also faithful in their integrity because verse 15 says, in their mouth, no lie was found for their blameless. Now, why lying? Why does that impact? If you read the New Testament, in fact, if you read the Old Testament too, you'll find lying is sometimes used as a metaphor for sin. The absence of lying in the mouth is a picture of living a life of integrity, a holy life, a righteous life. This is exactly what Peter talked about when he referred to Jesus Christ. And I was going to refer to this verse until I noticed this is in a context that is full of meaning for people who are suffering in a culture that is against them. So Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. See that? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And just as Jesus Christ did that, so do we do it. And notice John pairs this idea of having no deceit with the word translated blameless. You know what, you know what that word blameless actually means in the Greek language? We sometimes read it in the New Testament with this phrase, without spot. It's used of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who is without spot and without blemish. And again, it reminds us that the encouragement and strength to be faithful in worship and faithful in obedience comes from following the path that Jesus himself already walked. This is the feudal war of the devil. He is even now doing everything he can to stop the Lord and his church, even little gateway Baptist church, from being triumphant. But the Lord's people will be victorious if we remain faithful despite the pressure of our culture. And my prayer as we move on, as God continues to work with us, is not necessarily that we have facilities, but that God will continue to give us the grace and the strength that we need to stand against the culture so that we can rescue people from the culture and do it in a way where we look with anticipation and hope to that great day when we will be gathered with the Lamb forever. Father, thank you.